Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Kermit gone? Good God almighty. Moses Albright keeps thinking, leaning against a tree, feeling his toes going from blue to purple, wondering why in the name of all creation he didn't wear his boots. Grabbed his tennis shoes so fast to get out of there, slashed them last summer to give his toes some breathing room. Felt good then. Lord, not now more like walking barefoot through the snow. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking with author Tricia Ricketts about Speed of Dark. In this beautifully written novel, Mary Margaret, a.k.a. Mary M., is swept into the memories of her dead mother, grandmother, and son, who died suddenly of a bacterial infection. When her husband leaves her for another woman, she feels herself crumbling and wants to drown herself in Lake Michigan, which knows itself by its Ojibwe name, Michigami. Michigami wants her in its icy depths. It's being destroyed by plastics and the waste products of manufacturers along its shores. Now it has the idea that Mary M. just might save it. But Mosley Albright, a kind, gentle man, who overcame his own struggles, he's more concerned with saving Mary M. Hi, Tricia. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Galit. It's a pleasure to be here. So how did you come to write Speed of Dark? Well, um, I guess you could say it's been a lifetime endeavor because I have written all of my life, even as a young child. And I had this I thought, a very interesting storyline going with Speed of Dark. And when the pandemic hit, and it was those first few months of lockdowns, it dawned on me, it is now time to not only address this, but to get this baby finished. And uh, there was an evolution. I mean, it it went through many changes. And uh, however, I think when I ended up with the three narrators that I did, that it actually got to the soul 
of the three issues that I that I think are pretty profound in profoundly uh, written in here, and that would be uh, redemption from grief, racial relationships, and the ecology of the planet. Mm. Uh, we've chatted a bit about our mutual love of Lake Michigan. We both grew up yeah. in the Chicago area, and your three main characters are Mary M. Phillips, Mosley Albright, and Lake Michigan. How did you come up with the idea of giving the lake a voice in your novel? Well, um, again, that was an evolution. At first, the way I had the book set up was I had uh, gods and demons, if you will, in the in the ever after who were vying for the soul of this Mary M. Phillips and actually put a wager on it. Well, I was in a writing workshop group at the time, and they, God love them, and I do appreciate what they did. They said, we're not buying it. It doesn't flow in with the rest of it. So I was flummoxed, truthfully, for a while. But then I got back into it, and I have always loved Lake Michigan, been swimming in it since I was just a little tiny girl. And it, I guess it was inspiration. I just thought, oh, I'm going to bring in Lake Michigan. And then I started to explore some of the early Ojibwe who lived on the northern shores and started to see the, like the depth of the spiritual love and the, how they treasured this freshwater source. And I just went with it. Mm. Let's talk about Northbrook. Of all the pretty towns around Chicago, how did Northbrook win a spot in your book? Um, I mentioned to you that we also lived there for a time. Our children graduated from Glenbrook North, and I used to take that exact metro train in the book from the book to work in the loop. So how did the town of Northbrook win that spot? Well, I actually lived in Northbrook for 15 years, and I find it a, a charming community. Um, and I also wanted Mary M. Phillips' uh, journey, if you will, to be an odyssey of sorts. And in order to do that, you had to have a means of transport, which became from the train spa- station, the metro, all the way down to the city of Chicago. And I thought, just like with um, Odysseus, who keeps running into different creatures, so to speak, or people, and usually very interesting characters, they each provide, I think you could say, transport for change and evolution. And so that's why I did that. So the city of Chicago plays a lesser role than Northbrook, but you seem really comfortable getting around on public transportation. Yes. Art Institute, the Shedd Aquarium, let's talk about that. Well, um, probably like anyone who's a Chicago native or lives here now, the um, the campus, if you will, the museum campus, the Art Institute, Millennium Park, they, they become branded in the topography of your brain. At least they have for me. And um, I think they, they become settings of our dreams, um, places where we've had major celebrations and perhaps uh, disappointments. So to actually use the city like that, because it's so deeply within me and has been for generations. Uh, My father and grandfather had the Ricketts restaurants that it's no relationship to Tom who owns the Cubs, but um, 
they had Clark and Diversity restaurant, one on Chicago Avenue, right across from the water tower, and later moved out to the suburbs. So my roots are very deeply entrenched in the soil of Chicago. Hold on. Was it pizza? I'm sorry. Was it pizza? The restaurant? Um, they, they weren't, they were, they were, I would say upscale. They were not uh, a chain, but uh, there were like four or five family members and they were mostly cousins and brothers who owned them. And they, they would share supplies, you know, if someone had a big party coming in, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the day. But um, uh, so, but anyway, I've been taking the L and taking the Metra and going downtown. Our household was very strongly passionate about the arts, uh, music for sure, and also uh, visual arts. So the Art Institute was a must-see, go-to place for us. And and I loved the part in your book. I loved the part where Mary M. is in the Art Institute, going up the magnificent staircase, walking into the room with the Impressionists. And I recognized exactly which painting she was talking about. Mm. That was so fun. Yeah, it is fun. I think it's fun, too, to use what um, you know like that. Yeah. Is Mary M. based on someone in particular? Mary M. is more based on emotions that I I have come to understand, I would say. Like, she's got cinnamon brown curly hair. I do not. But she has Irish roots, which I do have. And so I think characters, at least the way I write, they become an amalgamation of people who have made an impact on you, who have influenced you in one way or another. And then, just like a sculptor or a potter, you get to take that raw clay and sculpt it into something that's unique. Um, And then consequently, completely your own as writer. Mm -hmm. Why is she still calling out to Mamie? Can you talk about their relationship? I can. Um, So most recently, I have uh, done a lot of reading in kind of the Zen philosophy of understanding the soul, understanding the spirituality of existence, which is completely devoid of religion, even though she had been, Mary M had been schooled by her Mamie in Catholicism and the rosary and the the angels and the saints, which strikes me as uh, very Irish. And so um, I walk around. I, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but not that I talk to my mother and my grandmother and my dad, but sometimes I actually do. And I feel like they are my ancestor fabric, tapestry. And I am part of that wharf and whoop. And um, they're in me all the time. So because she was so deeply grieving what she has lost, she's calling on all she feels she can hold on to because she's lost her faith in a God, if you will. Mm-hmm. Why does Mary M. blame herself for her son's death? Um, well, I think anyone who has ever raised a child knows that you have made mistakes. 
some have, you know, minor repercussions. You know, they didn't go into piano because you said you thought math and biology were stronger, you know, majors to do, that kind of thing. However, occasionally someone, a parent, a mother, a father, will make a decision for a child, and there are very serious repercussions. Well, in this case, she does. She makes a decision, and even though she had a red flag for herself, she overrode that. And I think that's very human. And the consequences were dire, and she has to live with that. And sometimes living with something like that literally eats you up and then takes away all hope. And that's kind of what happens with Mary M. And it, so I think that, that that loss of hope comes through a decision she has made. So she, mm-hmm. she thinks, I'm the one who did this. And again, I think that's a very human reaction to a, a mistake, a mishap, a misspeak. Her husband doesn't come across that well. When she thinks back, she realizes he wasn't really good to her. Can you say more? Yeah, I think that's. I think that is fair, um, and it. I think it's part of the redemption of this Miriam Phillips in even realizing that he was not very nice to her, that he didn't treasure her, like her, treat her easily and with compassion, and that's a growing up stage. And um, even though she's 50 years old, she is on this journey of growing up and finding the truth within herself. Yeah. We should make sure to say her name is Mary Margaret, and she's called Mary M, as in the initial M. Yes. Because it's sounding like we're saying Miriam, but it's Mary M. Yes. Um, Let's discuss Mosley Albright. He knows he's an alcoholic but he's been clean for years and his travails led him to meaningful work that he loves. Yes. What, what else can you say about him? I can first say I love Mosley Albright dearly, deeply, completely. I think he is a fine, fine man who's gone through some terrible times himself, but through an accident that he has, a near-death experience, actually. He found that he had a gift that he could see into the eyes of others and understand when they are hurting, where they are needing his uh, solace. And he's just, I just think he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And I have known men like Mosley Albright, because I know men in the blues community, both black and white, actually, but the black men that I know in the blues community, in their relationships with me, have been utterly giving, deeply spiritual, kind, not always the way you'd want them to be, but they're, they're just really very loving And I drew on my friendships with men to create Mosley Albright. Hmm. I like it. The men he works with are sometimes mentally ill in addition to their drug problems. So how did you research what goes on in a place like a mission house? And and what surprised you most? 
Well, I did do I did do some um, research, and I have also been in a mission that was a more like a soup kitchen. So it was a day. Uh, it ran during the day. It didn't. It didn't have places where people would sleep. And I don't really have this mission being a place other than for men to come in for meals to get warm. And Mosley, of course, will you know give them clothing if he's got it, give them a little cash if he's got it on hand, um, anything to see that the people who come to a mission that their needs would be met as perfectly good human beings, a little different from the mainstream, perhaps. I mean, there's one guy who's got schizophrenia and little Kermit is, he's got some uh, mental uh, disabilities, but the goodness in all seems to come out. And I guess that's another theme that I I was really working with is that we're all in this together, (laughs) this getting through life. And the more we realize that and to try to just help each other just get through is, I guess, a message that I really wanted to uh, propound, to proffer to people. Mm -hmm. Do you think Mosley's right about what the men need? Does does he think any of them will ever become model citizens? No, I don't. I think he just understands, like, there's a scene where he's under this series of viaducts that are strung together that he calls thunder crossing. And he looks over at something that is in the shape. You you could imagine that it was the Shroud of Turin. And there have been leaks under these viaducts that that end up looking like either um, uh, the Virgin Mary or the Shroud of Turin or something. And people do bring food and and, uh, candles to light in praise of something higher. And when Miriam says, well, what are they, they're bringing food, what is this? He says, that's all some people have. And, And I think that is true. So wherever a person is, sometimes that's all they've got. And it shouldn't allow us to be critical or to uh, despise them in any way because that's all they've got. They didn't maybe even choose to be like that with that disability or born in that particular community that didn't support them, but that's what they've got. Mm -hmm. Last year, 22 million tons of plastic got tossed into the Great Lakes and our Lake Michigan got more than half of that. So since the lake is one of the three characters in your book with a voice, mm. and you would, can you address what's going on? Is there any hope? Uh, you mean uh, Mishigami's voice and mm-hmm. as a character? Well, that evolved as I was writing. I'm a discovery drafter. So I start writing something, not with this huge constructed plan, like an outline you would do for an English essay, but I just kind of go. And he did evolve. And it dawned on me that he, you know, I I did the research on on Lake Michigan, good Lord, and found out that it has only been in its present shape for 14,000 years. That shocked me. I I thought it would have gone back, you know, eons and eons back to when the, um, what do they call it? The the, uh, Ice Age? The Inland Sea. Yeah, the Ice Ages. Mm. I mean, but so, I mean, it was 
he was present, he was there. And I thought, oh, he's seen quite an evolution of these planetary changes, which is interesting. And also the um, influx of different animals and vegetation, actually, that took up home, if you will, on his side or, or within him. So I had him be kind of a steward, if you will. And then I thought, I just thought it would be funny to give him a, he, ha, he speaks a little French because the trappers, you know, um, who came down, um, down the, uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway and then came through the, the Great Lakes, they were French speakers. And so he picked that up and he picked up part of the Ojibwe culture and their calling uh, the spirit of the water, even the name is the great water is Michigami, which is an Ojibwe term. And his, his savior, his Nibinabe, means spirit of the water. So I just kind of, I guess you could say cherry picked ideas that excited me and turned him into this, he's a little threatening too, because he's very threatened. And um, I did also I did research into the Eastland tragedy, which took place mm -hmm. under the Clark Street Bridge, and I was fascinated by what I found there. And so it, that part was really very exciting and very fun. It was fun to read too. Thank you. <laughs> which so which of the characters did you most love in the novel? Oh, I would say I loved mostly the most, but. One funny little character who came in and then kept coming in a couple of times was Nona Conchetta. Mm -hmm. and she's a little Italian crone and who has, I guess you could say there's, a, there's this other theme in there. It's having faith, not in any religion, not even in a God, but faith that all will be all right eventually. And she is definitely one of those. And she, make, she would make me laugh. And, and I'd be writing, and all of a sudden, you know, she'd pop up again on the second train ride, say. And I'd think, what? What are you doing here? And she, you know, I'd start typing away, and I'd thought, think, okay, you're in. Let's just go with it. <laughs> it was fun. It was, it's very fun to write like that. Yeah. So, Trisha, what are you working on next? I'm working on my next novel. And I'm writing all the time. It's on my website, which is patriciajricketts.com. And I always tell everyone with no um, looking at uh, marijuana, don't forget the J. But I'm working on my next novel, and the name of it is The First of June. It will take place during the pandemic for a woman who's had it with the constraints of patriarchies, the pandemic. And she sets out on a road trip and camps with her dog by herself. Oh, so a Ulysses-type journey. Again, I, I find that kind of fascinating. With a woman? Yeah. Love it. Love it. Trisha, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, Galit, thank you for having me. It's always, it's so fun to be able to talk with you and to be able to talk about Speed of Dark. And thank you for joining me today. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to author Trisha Ricketts about Speed of Dark, a novel set in my hometown, Chicago. 
Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading, everyone.